welcome to the Flying Solo Podcast, a show for those going it alone in business. If you're working solo or have dreams of starting up, you'll find support, inspiration and advice at Australia's largest and liveliest small business community. Find us at flyingsolo.com.au or join us on Facebook. Here's your host, Robert Gerrish. Yes, Robert Gerrish here, founder of Flying Solo, co-author of the bestseller of the same name, and author of The One Minute Commute, my latest book, published by Pan Macmillan and available in all good bookshops, online and as an audiobook, courtesy of audible.com. Yikes, six hours of me droning on. Anyway, that's enough about The One Minute Commute. Before I tell you about this show, a quick plug for Flying Solo's premium membership that has a mass of tools and benefits to help your business stand out and to ensure you stay at the top of your game. As part of membership, you get a full-page listing in the directory, entry to a private discussion group, access to a library of over 80 how-to videos, a copy of the Flying Solo book, and much more, all for just $99. Head to the join page to find out more. Now, this episode is a recording of a fireside chat that took place at the recent Flying Solo live event in Melbourne and featured David Koch speaking with Holly Ransom from Emergent. Now, as you probably know, David has been a business owner for over 30 years. He's got an absolute passion for the sector. He was director of the New South Wales Small Business Development Corporation for six years and you probably know him best as host of Sunrise and president of Port Adelaide Football Club. He's one of Australia's foremost business and finance commentators, and he's also the thought leader and chairman of his own family business, Pinstripe Media, owners of Flying Solo. So we join the talk as David is just introducing and inviting Holly to join him on the stage. Now, while Holly uh, comes up, I'll give you a bit of a download on the bleeding obvious. Have a seat, Holly. She is the world's best networker. Um, um, Remember when we had the G20 here uh, a couple of years ago? Um, Holly was chair of the Y20, the Youth 20. Um, We had the G20 of of the top um, uh, political leaders. We had a B20 which Richard Goida chaired from West Farmers then um, for business leaders, and Holly chaired the Y20. As a result, uh, she has gone on to present in front of the Dalai Lama. Uh, Richard Branson was asked, who would be the six dream guests for a dinner party of his? Um, He mentioned uh, Nelson Mandela um, and Holly. Among, amongst his six. Um, in fact, Richard Branson, I think I've met him many times as I reckon one of the world's great entrepreneurs. He invites Holly over every year to chair and keynote speak the Virgin Disruption Day, which is a day that Branson puts on for the staff of uh, Virgin to come up with new ideas in disruption. And Holly flies over every year to do that. At the, and she is still sub 30 years of age, so I am feel um, incredibly humble whenever I'm nearer and uh, actually think, what the hell have I done with my life? Would you welcome Holly? And... That's very kind. Thank you, David. And she's an iron woman. What was the last iron 
Yeah, uh, I did Vine Man not too long ago, not long after I joined the Port Adelaide board, actually, a couple yeah. of years now. Yeah. Um, so I'm gearing up for probably my next race early in 2019, trying to pick a new race location. But yeah, last one was Vine Man in 2016. Wow, yeah. wow. Um, so tell me about your business, yeah. Emergent. So firstly, thank you for that very generous introduction. And I should say the feelings are very much mutual. I feel very lucky to, uh, particularly with my role as director of Port Adelaide Football Club, to be able to learn from Koshi all the time. And I do learn. I, I speak all the time about how phenomenal not only a chairman uh, Koshi is, but how incredible he is in his business now, in the way he brings strategy together and the way he connects and joins dots. You're always finding opportunities and always mm -hmm. seeing things and creating things outside of the box. And our club are certainly a lucky beneficiary of that. Uh, Emergent started three and a half years ago. I had a background in doing change and transformation inside big companies. So originally working for the CEO of Rio Tinto, uh, then for one of the CEOs in at NAB and uh, basically loved doing organisational change work, but wanted to spin out and be able to have choice around who I worked with and the sort of projects that I said yes to. So Emergent was born. We sort of say that our reason for being is to be a force multiplier behind people and organisations who are trying to make the world a better place. And we go in and do a lot of disruptive strategy work. So we'll typically get called in by a business when they've changed CEO or maybe they've changed some of their board and they'll come in and say, okay, we either need help setting a new direction and working out how we set our strategy and operational plan for that, or we've got a new direction, but we're trying to go on the journey of how we get there and build the capacity of our leaders to actually be able to execute this, um, this change. So that's a mm. lot of our work. Okay. So you're really pushing and driving organisations to change their thinking. Yeah. How do, what are the, the biggest obstacles do you find in terms of us as private business owners in adapting change and embracing it? Well, I think you face a kind of a recurring set of mindsets. Um, I think there's a kind of a, a world of thinking that thinks the status quo is okay, so there's a contentment with where things are right now. Um, and I think sometimes the, the key thing you need to do if you're maybe working with, with leaders who think that way, maybe you're dealing with suppliers or um, other businesses that feel that way, is to try and bring data to life that suggests maybe the status quo isn't as safe or as sound as they think it might be. That can often be a really good way of moving them forward. I think one of the other challenges that people have got right now is sort of they feel like change is coming at them from so many different directions so quickly and to such a significant extent. And I think at times we can feel quite paralysed or overwhelmed by that. It's really easy to just think, geez, that's all too big and all too much. Where do I start? And I think there, again, it's about how do you break it down into bite-sized action steps? You know, mm. if you were to do one thing today or one thing this week that could move a step forward to understanding how that issue impacts your business better or trying that new idea that you've had on the back burner for a while that you think will deliver new value to your customers. You know, think about how you chunk things down so you can get kind of out of that paralysis by analysis. Mm. Okay, so talk about analysis because... You know, I run a small family business. We've got 20 employees. Um, you know, you don't have the resources or maybe the uh, either financial or human resources yep. to go too much into analysis, to do a deep dive. What are some of the solutions for a small business? 
Well, I think firstly, there are so many amazing tools out there now. I mean, it would blow your mind depending on what particular bit of analysis that you need. Like there's so many different bits of software and capability that you can bring in that can pull on your existing analytics and can sync the data that you're already tracking in your different systems, be that, you know, your, your payroll side of things, your sales system, you name it and can actually give you a new way of looking at your data. So it can, you know, not really do anything more than you're already doing, but it can present it in a way that tells you a new bit of information. I think the other thing is um, particularly, and I'm a a big fan of um, kind of the, the gig economy movement to some degree, and one of the things that I think that opens up is the opportunity to be able to bring in really specialised talent to pinch hit for you. So you can go online to an Expert 360 or Freelancer or any of the, you know, the platforms that facilitate gig economy work and you can find someone who can come into your business for a particular period of time, be it for a certain number of weeks or just to deliver a particular piece of work and you can actually tap into that expertise and insight at a fraction of the cost that you would be doing it if you were going to employ an agency to come in and do this piece of work or you're actually going to contract a company to do it. So I think we're actually at a really exciting time where our ability to access these sorts of uh, capabilities without having to bring them full-time into the payroll, which might be beyond the reach, is really, really doable. So give us... Let's go back who I... To Richard Branson, who you know well, I don't know nearly as well, but have had the pleasure of interviewing him a number of times. Mm -hmm. One of the great disruptors of the world, um, and I'm fascinated with disruptors to see whether they can keep doing it during their career. He'd have to be one of the best of all time. Give us his secrets. (laughs) (laughs) Um, One of the things I really love about Richard is the fact he is always learning. You will never see Richard Branson anywhere without a notebook and a pen because it doesn't matter who he's talking to or who he's listening to, he is taking notes. He's, he's continually challenging himself to learn from every situation, every counter he's in. And he's one of few people, given when we look at what he's gone and done, like it's unbelievable he would be in the world, if not the world's top entrepreneur, then certainly up there. Um, you'll find him asking more questions than you will offering opinions. Like you really have to push Richard to uh, give his lessons. He's right. much more interested in asking someone else and learning something um, from them. And the thing he, he would also say too is he tries things every day. So he was telling the story when I saw him in Canada, um, we caught up in May, and he'd been on a Virgin flight to get to Canada that day and it was just something simple. Like he, he observes and he looks and he tries to solve problems, not just at a big scale, but in day-to-day moments. So when the bigger moments come, it's almost like he's just continually building that muscle. So he commented that he'd seen the, the girls on the flight looking like their, their feet were really sore and these high heels they had to wear as part of their uniform. So, you know, before the flight's done, he's had a conversation with them. He's made a note to his, um, you know, chief of staff that's with him on the plane that they need to change the uniform or they need to get something better for the staff to be able to feel... Because he said, if they're feeling uncomfortable, our customers aren't getting the best customer service. And it's not a world-changing innovation or observation by any stretch, but it's this idea that he's always looking at every moment to go, when I see a problem how do I solve it and how do I not put that on someone else's responsibility but I take the action and I do it. So for me, the the question asking piece and the way that in every situation he finds himself in, he tries to um, be the solution to the problem or see a way of improving everything. They're just two muscles that are just on overdrive for him more than anyone else I've ever met. And and I remember talking to him because, you know, he's had a lot of failures as well. well. He's learnt from the failures. Um, anyone know how, if you're my age, you'll uh, relate to how he made his first million? Do you remember Tubular Bells, the album? 
uh, Mike Oldfield came in with this, uh, the musician came in with this crazy idea to do a complete album of just bell ringing and bells. <laughs> and Richard thought it was quirky when he was running Virgin Records and said, okay, you can record the album. Uh, we will give you the studio space at a cut, cut rate. Um, but the studio times were from 1 a.m. to 5 a.m. when no one else was using And he thought it was a crazy idea, but ended up making his first million. I so love that. He does take a chance on people, doesn't and he? He does. And he's the biggest believer in, you know, find great people and surround yourself with them. He's one of those business leaders that says it's more important that you focus on your employees than it is your customers. Because if you get that bit right first, your customers will be taken care of. Yep. You've got happy employees. They're going to be happy, engaged, you know, commit in the right way to the interactions they're having with the people you're doing business with. So he's really, really big on his people. And I, I love the audacity with which he works too. I mean, some of the really public campaigns that he's run, uh, you know, to, he, he's, he's very cheeky and, yep. and there's a real marketing kind of flair and cheek to him. And I think that's part of his charm. But also I think, and a lot of big business and small business can learn from him is that he builds his personal brand so closely with his business. Mm. I remember Jerry Harvey from... Harvey Norman, when I was interviewing him years ago when he just started Harvey Norman. And remember those, those TV ads Jerry Harvey used to do and front them? <laughs> and he looked a bit of a dick doing them. <laughs> and I, uh, the price was, so I actually interviewed him and I said, mate, why do you do your own ads? Because some people think you look a bit of a dick doing them, um, <laughs> not me. Um, and, and, and he said, you know, and this is the biggest mistake of every business, big and small, is that once the business owner gets to a particular size, they feel as though they've got to withdraw from the business and mm. hire better people around them. When the most powerful marketing tool is you, the owner, mm. because a customer knows there's a living, breathing human being behind that business. And that's Richard mm. and Jerry Harvey. And Jerry used to say, that, that gave me enormous advantage over Coles Meyer and yeah. David Jones and the like, who were just big corporate brand names. And I think the banks have fallen into that trap mm. at the moment too, because customers don't know that there's a living, breathing human being at the top of the tree yeah. looking after their interests. And the 2.0 that Richard takes that to, uh, in contrast to Jerry, is I think one of the things he's brilliant at <clears> is sharing uh, insights, tips, inspiration, like he adds value to the lives of the people who follow him. So right. I think he's one of the most followed people on LinkedIn <clears> in the world. He's got millions of t Twitter followers. He's continually, it's not just here I'm the face of the brand, it's here let me show you an insight into my world, let me kind of give you some tips and ideas on the issues and challenges you're facing, let me talk to you about world issues and what I think about them. So I think he's really good at, um, at personalising the personal brand yep. too. Yep. Um, on LinkedIn, he's one of my two favourites. Mm. Uh, the other one, you've got to follow him if you don't follow him on he's LinkedIn. Great. And the other one is the executive chairman of Daimler-Benz mm -hmm. in Germany. Um, he does just wonderful posts. Like he was, uh, and, and they're always quite inspirational and reflective of the people he meets. He will go, the six things I learned from having lunch with Kiki Rosberg. Um, um, the, the old F1 driver. Um, and he brings it all, 
sharing mm. the learnings he's getting out of it and yep. the experiences. And it, it's good that you brought it up because I think one of the things you have to be, or one of the things <coughs> I've noticed at least in my own journey transitioning from uh, corporate life into my own business is how intentional you've got to be about creating your own learning and development because you don't have kind of that happening and it's great. I'm preaching to the converted because you're the people that have come to something like this because you're hungry to learn and improve. But thinking about who you follow, thinking about that environment that you surround yourself with on a daily basis in terms of your social media feed, that has a direct impact on your well-being, that has a direct mm. impact on your focus uh, and that's going <coughs> to flow into how you engage with your people and team, how it is that you show up to the clients that you're dealing with that day. So being conscious around curating that from an energy and focus standpoint, just as much from a kind of ongoing learning and development piece, I think is really, really important. Yep. Um, you've learned a lot from Richard Branson. Yeah. Um, Holly, when Barack Obama came out the other month, it was a huge fanfare, him coming out, giving this one speech, one presentation. And I thought, oh, God, wouldn't I love to be that person interviewing him? Uh, I read the report the next day, and it was you who did it. <laughs> um, what did you learn from Barack Obama that could apply to us? So much. Uh, he, he's a really, I mean, it probably goes without saying for most in the room, I think truly irrespective of politics, he's a remarkable man. And one of the things that strikes you when you meet with him and you hear him talk is how well he knows himself. There's a real grounded confidence to him. There's not an arrogance. There's not a need to please. He's actually, it's funny, he's a really different energy to most of the other leaders I've met um, where there's... They're, they're antsier almost. You feel like they're amped up a little bit. They're on adrenaline. He's really calm and collected. He sits with pause quite readily. I don't, even if you watch our leaders on Q&A, you don't see this sort of behaviour. It's really quite different. And I think that's because he has spent the time really interrogating himself to go, who am I? What do I care about? What am I on the earth to do? Um, and what do I think about the issues and challenges that in the role that I'm going to play, I'm going to have to deal with? So I think for me, it really impressed upon me the, the importance of doing that self-work, of getting to a place. And I, I don't think that's a destination. I think that's an ongoing life journey. But making sure that you, you do the work to really get a sense of who you are um, and, and what you think about the issues and challenges maybe that your business is facing, maybe that your industry is facing, whatever that might look like for you. Um, I think one of the other things that... I really liked. I said to him at the end, um, we were doing this conversation in front of 350 leaders in, in Sydney. And at the end of this hour, I sort of said to him, look, you're in front of 350 leaders in Australia here. If you could leave them with a call to action, what would you like to encourage this room of people to do? And he spoke about the fact that he'd just been down in uh, New Zealand playing golf with his good friend, John Key. And he was saying, he was commenting about New Zealand real estate. And he was saying New Zealand real estate, a bit like Sydney and Melbourne, their prices are through the roof at the moment. And he said, it's not because John managed the economy really well, no offence to John, but he said, it's because Americans, my country people, are coming down to New Zealand, this beautiful part of the world, <clears throat> and they're buying up real estate because they're hatching their escape plan. They've decided that it's all a bit too hard, it's all a bit too messy, Trump being in the White House is all a bit too terrible, and they're checking out. And they're actually hatching a plan to just head off somewhere else and leave that for someone else to sort out. And I really appreciated this sort of rallying cry, and I feel like we probably need it in our country at the moment too, because after last week, aren't we all wanting to check out a little bit yeah. on what's going on in Canberra? <laughs> just go, oh, geez, can we trade with New Zealand for a moment or can we trade with somewhere else? But he said, you know, when did we decide that progress was a foregone conclusion? 
I mean, that's our responsibility of each and every one of us to pick up every day and to make sure that we continue to fight the good fight. And we should be investing under our own two feet in our communities that we live in, that we work in, that we serve, um, not in some other part of the world where we want to buy up monopoly real estate, so to speak. Mm. And I felt that was a really good encouragement. Each of, I think probably more now than ever, there's this really growing, uh, I think, community expectation, certainly, but also this ethos that, um, you know, you really need to think about the community that you work in and how it is that you contribute back. You know, I think we're moving beyond corporate social responsibility yeah. now into a new frontier of what that looks like. And, you know, investing and really connecting into where it is that you work and where it is that your customers are, I think is really, really important. And his call to action around, let's not be complacent about that and let's not decide that the stuff that matters is too hard. Let's make sure we all pick up and do our bit because yeah. then collectively we'll get it done. Let's hold that thought because I think that is good for business. Just a quick one on Obama that I read is that he consciously tries to cut down the decisions he has to make every day yep. to simplify his life. Um, little things like in his drawer he has the same coloured undies, <laughs> so he doesn't need to make a decision on which colour to wear that day. Um, it's true. Same so, Decision you know, fatigue. He, he, Decision fatigue. Mm, that's the I phrase love for it. it. I'm going to start choosing that. Um, I'll rip that one off. Uh, <laughs> but, but how, you know how everyone goes, oh, I'm just so busy. Uh, there's so much change going on. How do I cope? Well, you cope by simplifying the little things first. Yep. Um, he's a master of that. And the other thing he does really, really well, and he talked about it a lot, and it was kind of hitting me that it was in sharp contrast with Trump because the day we were having this conversation, Trump was launching a trade war on Twitter and his sacking rate, so they, they've now decided to keep tabs on how many people has he sacked over the course of his administration, <laughs> or fired, I should use the word fired with him. And on that day, so this is March this year, we're obviously not even halfway into his term, which is a scary thought in itself, um, but he had already surpassed the Nixon administration, which held the record of US administration firings of personnel. So he's got oh. this enormous changeover. But Obama talked a lot about how important um, the people that you surround yourself with is. And he continually talked about how intentional he was during his presidency of surrounding himself with diverse input. There wasn't a country he visited where he didn't sit down and talk with young people um, and make really intentionally sit with young leaders in that country and find out what their take was. Um, always thought about the um, racial um, diversity of the people around the table, always thought about gender diversity, um, completely different contrast to the current administration, but just really driving that point home around how do you hope to make the best decision mm. if you're not challenging yourself with the, the best kind of input and giving yourself the best rigour in the process? Yep. And that he was talking about that a lot during... I asked him a question around um, sort of the, the, the toughest decisions he made in his administration, and he was telling the story of the Osama bin Laden raid. And, you know, on the day that they did that, you know, they didn't know necessarily that storming that compound was going to deliver them the man, but he talked about the process that they went through to test the intelligence and the smarts and the different perspectives and the scenario testing that they'd done to get as confident as they could. And he said, you know, if we wouldn't have been able to get so many of the significant accomplishments my administration done were it not for the people that I surrounded myself with. Wow. And there's that, that um, famous photo... Mm. Isn't there in the in the room with uh, with him surrounded? Yep. Um, 
Hillary Clinton was there. Yeah, I think she was Secretary of State at the time. And the looks on their faces as one of those great moments in history. Yep. Um, Let's get back, though, to building your values. Mm -hmm. Um, What are you meant to to be... What are you meant to be here for? Mm. Um, Your specialty is transformation with millennials Mm -hmm. as well, isn't it? Yeah, Um, we do a lot of work um, in that space. Understanding... Um, uh, what drives millennials from a customer point of view, from a staff point of view. That's key to that generation. Mm. More than grumpy old baby boomers like me who um, uh, uh, were brought up that it's about the title and the money, Mm. millennial staff and customers Mm. is based around them being proud of the values of the people that they work for or they do business with. Absolutely, and wanting to attach to and associate with those sorts of brands. Um, And I think, you know, we're seeing this at a a collective level. Um, I think as well, Edelman Trust Barometer out this year was pretty negative across the board, except for this really interesting bounce that was this group they're calling belief-driven buyers. So there's this whole cohort, uh, it's quite extraordinary now, um, the, the percentage of people around the world. You know, in the Edelman barometer this year, it was saying, you know, 37% of people now specifically will boycott or choose to consume uh, a particular brand based on their stance on a political or a social issue. So that's becoming that significant a purchasing decision, not just on whether or not they agreed with it or not, but whether that brand chose to speak up or not. So actually being seen to really stand for and represent the issues that you care about. And millennials, you know, overwhelmingly, you know, purpose comes out as the strongest criterion that they're looking for when they think about places that they want to work. Um, Flexibility comes a a close second in terms of the autonomy and empowerment they're looking for in the way that they show up. But this is, I often say, you know, this, this, my generation, millennials, we're a product of baby boomer parents. We're a product of baby boomers who, who, you know, we created corporate social responsibility. You know, Gen X gave us triple bottom line. We're kind of the next frontier of that. And we're a generation who grew up being told, you know, do what it is that you love to do, follow your passion. Mm. Um, And so this generation haven't grown up in a vacuum, but they're one that become increasingly important to us as business owners, because right now they're 37% of our Australian workforce. By 2025, they're expected to be three quarters. So think about the intergenerational composition of your workforce right now. And in terms of that transition that might be taking place for you over the next eight years, if it tracks with what the ABS tells us, it's really important we're thinking about, do we know how to attract them? Do we know how to retain them? Are we comfortable with the intergenerational mix that we've got in our workforce? But also Macquarie published a piece uh, probably four or five weeks ago now that said by 2028, one in every three dollars earned in Australia will be earned by a millennial. So we're also going to see an extraordinary shift in who's got the dollars, who's spending in the economy, and therefore what are they Mm. looking for in terms of the decision-making factors that go into deciding to buy one brand versus another. Yep. Um, Years ago, John McFarlane, when he was running ANZ Mm. here, uh, banks spent an enormous amount on their graduate recruitment programs, picking the best graduates and trying to keep them, and usually um, uh, spent heaps of dollars on recruitment. And um, John was telling me back then that their retention rate after five years was less than 10%. Ouch. And he started to say what on earth is going on here? You know, we spend so much money and we can't keep them. And they did a study on it and it was about flexibility, Mm. it was about values. Um, And so he wanted to introduce a new policy that said in your first five years working for the bank, you could take a year off if you wanted to, Mm. to go and travel or go and do that social 
uh, project that you yep. wanted to in Africa or Asia or whatever. He said the hardest people to get on board were my senior executives <laughs> who are going, no, we're not going to pander to these young whippersnappers. <laughs> you know, we pay them good money, we give them a title, that's all they should be entitled to. <laughs> and he said, it's just that intergenerational understanding in yeah. business just isn't there at the moment and needs to change. He ended up getting it through and retention went from 10% to 85% wow. in two years. Wow, yeah. that's huge. Just that's by statistic. understanding what they wanted and the value set. Yeah, big time. And, and look, I think we do have a bit of intergenerational tension, not necessarily just in the workplace. I think in some households at the moment. Sometimes <laughs> when I go out and I talk about millennials, you know, I have a lot of people come up to me and say, oh, thank you so much. I understand my children so much better now. <laughs> I go, oh, that wasn't even what I was trying to do, but that's great. Um, but no, I think you're 100% right. And my big belief is we've got to seek to understand before we seek to be understood. Like, it's fine to have our way of doing things and to, to even believe that one way is better than the other, but there's, there's a reality to having to understand um, who it is we're dealing with and then try and find, is there a compromise? Is it easier to adapt? Um, is there a way of representing my idea or the approach that we've got in order that it's going to be able to, to land with the person I'm talking to better? But on the career one, you know, one of the stats that amazes me about millennials, um, one of the things I find I defend my generation around more than anything else is the fact that we all want to be CEO tomorrow. And <laughs> you'll meet those millennials, don't get me wrong. Uh, I think you would meet those people in any generation, but definitely there's more of an instantaneity to my generation. And we do want things faster. We used to be able to put things into Google and get an answer in a fraction of a second. But the average millennial male, by the time they turn 18, will have spent 10,000 hours gaming. Think about that for a second. It's a point of comparison, they will have spent 10,000 hours at school. So games have had as big an impact kind of in oh. neurological gearing as school has. And girls aren't exempt from this. The fastest growing category of gamers is female millennials. So we're, we're catching up with enormous pace. But what's interesting about that is I actually think millennials are projecting a gaming world onto a working reality. So for those who are gamers, maybe those who've watched people game, what happens every time you do something successfully in a game? You accomplish a task, you do something well, you get to level up, right? You get to move into a new world, you get a new power, you get a new capability. Um, and that's sort of what's going on at work. It's this idea that, oh, I'm going to join the graduate program and five years later I'm going to graduate from the graduate program when actually along the way here I've done all the things that you told me that I had to do in year two and a half, and you're telling me I've still got to wait two and a half years to get to the arbitrary end of the graduate program. That's sort of butting heads. And I often say to, to HR managers, it doesn't mean you have to throw the HR structure out overnight. But what you do need to think about is how do you create more transparency in the pathways? I watch millennial after millennial leave and not even go to a promotion, just go to an equivalent job and an equivalent organisation because they believe it might be more fertile ground for them. You know, they're convinced that this isn't a place where there's opportunity for them. And that's not necessarily how management or people feel. It's just that there hasn't been a communication that's, that's met and engaged. Um, so that's one thing. But also, how do you create sub-levels within levels? So in the five years it's going to take to go from a graduate to a manager, how can there be 12 levels? And you know they take five years, but they know there's 12 levels. And so what you're doing is actually engaging their need and want for momentum and progress because you can get loyalty out of a millennial if you structure the pathway in the right way. 
Um, so how do you create those sub-levels so you're, you're getting their need for momentum and progress met, but at the same time, you're still keeping things within the bounds of what you need and the experience you genuinely need them to gain to be able to move forward and take the next step? You can now understand why I am the cheerleader of the uh, Holly Ransom fan club, <laughs> uh, An absolutely remarkable uh, woman. I've got to say, follow her on LinkedIn and your podcasts, oh, Coffee yeah. Pods. Listen to Coffee Pods if you're up for it. It's a whole collection of podcasts with game-changing leaders um, with the want to inspire each and every one of us to be the change that we want to see in, in our own company, in our community, you name it. So we've got... But really diverse bunch of people. Yeah, so. Olympic athletes. We've got, um, you know, fastest growing um, BRW, you know, company CEOs. We've got um, leaders of global movements, uh, EY Entrepreneur of the Year winners, you name it. Yep. So check it out. Coffee pods, yep. it is. What do you think, Holly Ransom? Thank you so much. And that's where we'll leave this show from Flying Solo and your host, Robert Gerrish. We'd love to receive feedback, even a brief review for those listening via iTunes. If you're planning to start a business or rejuvenate the one you're in, check out our bestseller, Flying Solo, How to Go It Alone in Business. It includes everything we know about working on your own. And of course, we invite you to dive into the resources and supportive community at flyingsolo.com.au. 